Welcome to episode 90 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's guest is Arka Chatterjee. Arka is a wonderful landscape photographer and an intellectual property lawyer. Awesome combination. We sat down on the podcast to answer all of your questions about copyright law and landscape photography. We started out with a little history lesson and then we get into the nitty gritty topics relating to photography and intellectual property rights. There's even more goodness over on Patreon this week. Ark and I talk about contracts and all the things you need to be thinking about as a photographer, including types of clauses, uh, pretty much like it's a legal goldmine. Just check it out. Gosh, special thanks to our awesome Patreon supporters and podcast producers. Uh, This podcast would not be possible without your support. Michael Howard, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, Chris Rice, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, and Jason Matias. These amazing folks contribute at the $20 a month level and higher on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. I got to tell you guys, the, the Patreon is really sustaining the podcast. It's I love hearing uh, from you guys on Patreon and and just I'm doing it for the community and for you guys and Patreon's a way for you guys to to pay me back as, as much or as little as you can. So thank you for doing that. As a side note, if you want to share the word about any of your services uh, that might be applicable to the landscape photography community, you too can support the podcast over on Patreon. Thanks. All right, let's get to the podcast and listen to all about legal stuff with Arca. Well, Arka Chatterjee, it is super awesome to have you on F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, you know, uh, I had the fortune of having you recommended to me because I was trying to... Um, I really wanted to get somebody on the show who had some copyright and intellectual property experience, perhaps a lawyer. Um, and, you know, even a bonus would be someone who's also a landscape photographer. And boom, here you are. So I'm super excited for this one. Yeah, me too. Uh, the the law is how I make my living. And uh, photography is, is one of the ways that I enjoy my living. Not that I don't enjoy the law. I you know, I, I feel like I've fallen into my dream job lately, uh, doing intellectual property strategy. But uh, it, it doesn't diminish the fun of uh, the, and and the very different challenge of being a photographer. And and I also I also paint and I engage in a, a lot of different artistic endeavors. But it's interesting that that for me the law, my interest in the law was driven in part by my interest in the arts. So. Awesome. Um, it's cool to, to sort of have a life that interfaces with, with both of those aspects of my life and my interests. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it would be cool later on in the podcast to talk a little bit more about that that intersection because I think that would be interesting. Um, I'd be delighted to. Yeah. So how long have you been uh, shooting landscape? 
Uh, in earnest, I've been shooting since about 2001. Uh, wow, okay. I got my, yeah, it's been a while. I, I got my start in photography in film. Um, it was actually a class that I took during my undergrad and I was using my dad's old camera. It was a Canon, uh, FTQL from 1968. And it was a, it was a lovely camera, everything manual, no meter, no nothing. And that got stolen while I was uh, taking that class. So I ended up getting a C in the class on account of that, <laughs> but, uh, That's not fair. it, I know it's not fair, but you know, I, it seems to not have affected my long-term trajectory. So that's good. Uh, and then that got replaced by our home insurance with a color with, with, with a, not a color, but with a camp, with a, a camera that actually had autofocus. And so I shot that for a while, fell away from it. And then digital really rekindled the whole experience for me. And, uh, for whatever reason, the first thing I started shooting was landscape. That's what that's what moved me. So that's awesome. And I um, I realized as well that um, your wife is also a great photographer. She is, and that was actually one of the reasons why we met and had such affection for each other. And you know, one of the one of the ways that we continue to sort of find common ground in our marriage through our sort of common interest in the arts and making art. That's awesome. I feel like <laughs> that is a recipe for either disaster or complete and total success. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that there is a, there is a possibility of harmful competition. Uh, that hasn't happened with us. Not at all. I mean, we're, we tend to be very collaborative. So, so it works out, works out really, really well. <clears throat> plus, plus, you know, I think, I think especially if you're a landscape photographer, having a spouse that does it as well, it, it can really save your marriage because landscape photographers are the most annoying people to travel with. Right? I know. I mean, can you, like, can hold you on. Imagine? I got I to gotta set up my tripod and stand here for two hours. It's like, and, are you yeah. serious? Yeah. Are you crazy? Like, why are you – how can you just sit there in that weird contorted position <laughs> <laughs> for two hours like that's right. insane you just take the picture and go right and and it, and it drives people crazy but can't you, if, can't you just use your cell phone come on dude yeah dude your cell phone does everything why do you carry that heavy stuff around and you're just like <laughs> no it's different just trust me it's different <laughs> it's gonna be awesome i think Right. And, then, and then it doesn't turn out awesome because something you didn't expect happens, like some cloud somewhere in the distance blocks the sun and all of a sudden your your beautiful sunset never came to pass. And and then, you know, your company's looking at you and saying, what? Why? And then, yeah. And then, <laughs> right. Exactly. And they're like, we just wasted two hours of our life so that you could do that. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, my, wife, to my life. Welcome to my life. That's right. That that's what it is. That's what it is. I I don't enjoy being in the outdoors. Damn it! I'm solving problems out here. I'm solving problems. So, <laughs> well, of course, of course, so much of the enjoyment is solving the problems, right? So, and and man, when you get that, when you get that piece that is just working, oh, there's nothing quite like that. So, um, my wife gets that, and and so. And not only does she get it, she does it. So that makes that makes things very sustainable. That's amazing. Well, uh, I feel like 
You were very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I know. I I know every day how lucky I am uh, to have the family that I do. Yeah, uh, in every respect. You know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. So, well, dude, let's uh let's dive into intellectual property law and photography. So, for people maybe that aren't lawyers, like what is intellectual property law, and then maybe maybe talk a little bit about kind of what, how does that intersect with landscape photography? Sure. So the general concept of intellectual property law is an extension of, of property law and, and property generally speaking is, is the right for one person or one entity to sort of own something. What it really means to own something is to prevent others from using it. Right. So I have sort of an exclusive right to use this thing, whatever it is. Now, when you're talking about physical objects or even land, uh, things get complicated enough, but at least you're not dealing with the problem of what it is, what, what is the thing that I own, right? Like, you know, it's, it's that ball or it's that car or it's that house or it's that plot of land, right? You just know. But when you're dealing with intellectual property, you're dealing with something else. You're dealing with um, an expression, uh, in, in, in the terms of copyright, you're dealing with a creative expression, right? If you're dealing with patents, you're talking about an invention, uh, an invention that sort of usefully utilizes some scientific principle. But, but, but you're not claiming the scientific principle. You know, you can't own gravity. You can own, you know, uh, some type of invention that's based on gravitational principles. Uh, similarly with copyright, uh, you get to own the expression, the artistic expression, but not necessarily the idea that you're expressing, right? So, so I may write a novel which has a brilliant idea in it about um, how to solve world hunger, right? But I, when I have, when I gain copyright protection, I don't own that idea of how to solve world hunger. What I own is my how I, how I explain that idea, my, my expression of it, right? Um, so I think what intellectual property is, is, is an effort to give creators and inventors uh, some kind of protection and incentive to keep on doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. Now, um, in the United States... It's pretty clear that that idea was at the forefront of the founding fathers' mind because the first copyright and patent acts were passed in 1790. They were among the first laws passed in the United States, and in fact, it's in the Constitution. It's one. Of, so the Constitution is written as a as a limiting document, right? Because the founding fathers were concerned about federal overreach, and so. They specifically stated what the powers of the federal government were in the affirmative, with the assumption that those powers that were not described in the Constitution do not fall to the federal government. This, this has become a subject of massive debate now with big government, small government, whatnot. But, but we're going to sidestep all that and focus on the one thing, one of the things that the founders clearly granted the federal government, and that was the power to make laws that um, take that uh, consider the 
that, that create incentives for uh, progress in the sciences and useful arts, which is what we call the, the intellectual property clause of the Constitution. So it's, it's right in there at the, be- at the dawn of the nation. Huh. The, the founders thought, among all the other things that we should be empowering Congress to do, a standing army? No, nah, not so much. But intellectual property? Yeah, definitely. Um, we should definitely do that. So, so it, it kind of speaks to how important it was. Thomas Jefferson felt it was very important. I think Benjamin Franklin also thought it was very important to, to understand and appreciate um, the need to give creators and inventors the um, an incentive to create and, monet- and, and and the ability to monetize their inventions. Mm-hmm. So, so in the end, uh, the whole notion of intellectual property is is really about incentive creation. It's, it's, it's a government subsidy in some ways, a creative subsidy, because the rights come from the government. They're defined by the government. Um, but there are a lot of common law property concepts, which, which sort of tell you what you can do with them that go back far, that go far back in time to the way the English thought about property uh, and not just like, like physical property, real property, right? But you're applying it to ideas. So, so I think where things get tricky is, is not so much like, can I sell this idea? Or it's, I, I shouldn't call it an idea, expression. Can I, can I sell this expression? Um, can I license this expression? Th- those questions are, are not difficult to answer. What's, what's harder to answer is, what is the expression? Is this expression entitled to protection? Um, is somebody trespassing on my expression? Is somebody infringing my expression? Right. These are the questions that are harder to answer, and um, that's sort. That's usually what consumes any type of dispute or litigation. Like, did you infringe? Right. And did you like? Uh, yeah. Like someone using it on their website or on Facebook or like actually printing it and putting it on their wall or using it for a magazine like those are all different uses of that intellectual property that may or may not actually be an infringement i yeah so i think those are the what you describe tend to be the easier cases although there are defenses there can be defenses to any one of those the harder cases become especially in the digital age when somebody takes a photo and uses it uses a part of the photo in connection with a different work. Mm -hmm. So there was a recent dispute over uh, a poster for, I think it was season two of Netflix's series, Stranger Things. I remember that. Yeah. And and if you, yeah. And if you you look at this photo, it's got this amazing supercell storm, right? This huge circular storm cloud in the, in, in the image. And, and it looks, it looks ominous as, as you, it looks incredibly ominous which is part and parcel with that show. And yeah, and what they, uh, the, if I remember correctly, they used it just for like, um, like kind of mock-ups that they were kind of mostly just using internally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it, but it speaks to the, it speaks to the creative process that's happening in, in a lot of these entertainment and video game studios. There's just a lot of what we call photo bashing that happens. You know, artists will just sort of jump on the web and just pull a reference file. Right. of whatever they find on Google search. <laughs> and then from that reference file, they'll start bashing together these, these totally new compositions. But within those compositions, 
sometimes you can see evidence of the original photo. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes they're just using a, a photo as a texture to develop, you know, more texture or a more realistic look to an object. And you would never know. You just couldn't, you could never figure out that somebody else's photo was used to develop that, that texturization. But um, in this instance, it was pretty clear that uh, that storm cloud was photographed by somebody else who did not work at Netflix. <laughs> so um, it, it became a bit of an issue. I don't remember exactly how that case resolved, but, but this is the kind of stuff that I think these, these are the kinds of cases that, that are interesting for lawyers, certainly, because they're sort of at the edge. They, they, they blur the lines of what copying really means. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and in this, in the U S and in Europe, uh, it's easy. Th these kinds of offenses are more actionable than in other places. Um, you know, so, so, so the scope of copyright protection really varies from country to country. Uh, and, and, and when I say scope, are we talking, the, the question really is, for example, are we talking about a literal copying a verbatim copying and nothing more? Because that's a pretty limited protection, right? Um, whereas, whereas if I, can copy part of something and incorporate it into another work, and can I get away with that? So, <laughs> right. so that that second that second question is the um, is the harder question. Yeah. So, I, I'm always amazed at how um, it seems like the general kind of non photographer public, and even some photographers, have such a um, just almost no grasp on intellectual property rights, especially as it relates to uh, photography. So maybe you could t touch on like what actually is protected and what's not. Well, you know, what I've seen is it goes two ways. Either you have uh, photographers who have no idea that their works are entitled to protection, or you have photographers who uh, think that their protection is absolute and that there can be no you know, gaps or, right. I, or weakening of those protections. I, like I, um, I fall and, and the I, last one. I'm like, that's mine. Can't use that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, 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 that, and that's a pretty common dichotomy. But uh, I think one uh, an interesting way to think about this is to recognize that photography became a thing in roughly the 1830s, 1840s, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and it was pretty primitive then and, and it's pretty clear if you look at the pictures of that era that they were pretty abstract representations of reality, if you could even call them that, right? Like a daguerreotype, that's it's black and white, it's fuzzy, it's blurry, it's got weird chemical stains. It's definitely reinterpreting reality. And yet, most legal scholars at that time thought of photography as just reproduction. It's like it's like a copy machine. You know, why would you, why, why would you consider that to be artistic expression? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and this opinion was so prevalent that the U S copyright law did not recognize officially copyright over photographs until 1884. So it took, what is that? 40 years from the inception of the first photographic technologies to recognize that, Hey, a photograph can be an act of creative expression. And, and that was an interesting case. It went to the Supreme Court. It involved a, a portrait of Oscar Wilde. And uh, the, 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 the artist who took the portrait sued a lithographic company that was distributing it. 
And the lithographic, the lithographic company's defense, quite literally, in 1880, I guess that would have been 82, before it went up to the Supreme Court, um, was, well, you don't have a copyright in a photograph. It's just a picture. It's, you know, it's like a photocopy. Yeah, that's not a, that's not a copyrightable thing. Right. Right. That was, that was his defense. And, and that defense went all the way to the Supreme Court. It's very hard to get a case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court gets to choose what cases it wants to hear, and it only chooses 1% of the cases that are presented to it every year. I don't know if that was the case in 1884 when the Supreme Court picked this one to decide, but it's interesting that it had it went through that much litigation. Just that question of, is a photograph really a meaningful act of creative expression? That was that was the question, right? Mm-hmm. And and the and it was answered in the affirmative by the Supreme Court. It hasn't been overturned since, and I think that's pretty uncontroversial now, right? I don't know. Like um, I feel like the general public, um, especially as it relates to the internet, and maybe it's slightly a slightly different topic. You know, I've, I you hear people all the time say like, "Well, if it's on the internet, it's fair game to do whatever." You know, it's like that's <laughs> not true at all. You know. Uh, well, the, 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 I, think, I think the irony is twofold. So, I, the first off, um, you, what, is, what is your perception of what a photograph is? Right? Is it is it mechanical reproduction of reality? Is it a representation of reality? Is it intended to be reportage or is it intended to be art making? Right? And and I think there's there's more sympathy in the public eye towards art making as being something that you protect, right? Mm-hmm. Versus versus reportage which is like well we need to know right that's freedom of speech like why can't i i or that's freedom of information i need to know things right and and photography is a way for me to know things about the real world so so th- this this could lead to a whole other discussion about whether whether photography really is a representation of the real world i happen to think it isn't but you know that's that's a separate debate i think what's what's fairly uncontroversial at least in the courts and in the law is that photographs in general are creative expression. As long as the photographs were taken by a human, and, and there's been some controversy about this too, uh, which you may have heard about. Yeah, the monkey the yeah. selfie or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the <laughs> monkey selfie. Uh, but but the, the, the general rule is, is that uh, as long as the photographs were taken by a human, uh, it's entitled to protection as, a, as an act of creative expression. Um, now the second question you raise about reproduction is interesting too, because I sense that when the, uh, the law moves slowly and, and when copyright laws were originally made in 1790, people didn't really think that hard about mass copying verbatim. I mean, the printing press existed, but you didn't own a printing press. I didn't own a printing press. You know, printing presses were owned by institutions, Mm -hmm. right? So while institutions could be bad actors, it wasn't like every single person could disseminate millions of copies of something, right? It just was not – you just couldn't do it. The same was true when the original phono records came out. Um, it was very hard to duplicate a phono record, a sound recording. It was, it was even pretty difficult to duplicate a photograph up through the 60s even, um, you're right, though. The internet has changed everything, and and the laws, the the laws really don't keep up. There was an effort to um, make the laws better in this respect, called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, right. but that was passed in 1998. 
You know, there hasn't been significant update to the law since then. So, um, and this is because the laws move slowly. Right. Uh, legislation moves slowly. I mean, we all know how much, how, how difficult it is to get a law passed in Washington. And even though intellectual property laws tend to be pretty wonky and therefore they're not very politically divisive and they usually enjoy bipartisan support, getting Congress people to sort of sit down and think about these issues is is very tough. Uh, Barack Obama was a president that actually was pretty engaged on these issues and a number of interesting laws in the patent space were passed during his tenure. But but that's not that's not the normal situation. It, it takes a certain degree of nerdiness, I think, to be interested in this subject. I'm sorry. I don't think I. I don't think I answered your question. Are you calling? Are you calling us all nerds? Yeah. Well, I'm calling myself a nerd. Um, I think I. I think I definitely count. Uh, I don't know you well enough to call you a nerd, but. Um, <laughs> well, I, I am. You're, if it's I'm fine. calling you, and, and I and I think I think it's a good term. I think it's a positive term. You know, like. Well, my. I don't think it's it has a neg- doesn't have a negative connotation. Oh, my my wife tells me she loves nerds, so I I think. I think it must be fine. I, th- I think it's attractive now. Well, I mean, the, really, the question is like, what is actually protected? Um, and I think what is protected. So I think what's protected when you're talking about a photograph. I think what's protected is the photograph. So if you take a picture, and you even if you don't publish it, right, the moment you click that shutter, uh, this sort of invisible copyright shield forms around it. Okay, so so the, the copyright protection is inherent the moment you take a picture on your camera. I won't even say your camera. The moment you take a picture, okay, mm-hmm. there's a there, the act of you taking that picture forms this shield of copyright around it, right? Now the default is that that shield covers you as well because you're the author. That's the default condition, okay? Um, if you though are working for somebody there is a possibility that the shield doesn't cover you, but it covers your employer and that mm. you're just, you're just a cog in the machine. You're, you're an employee, right? Mm-hmm. So that, mm-hmm. that's a thing that can happen. Um, and that's one of the things that uh, uh, photographers need to be very careful of when they're doing work to whether, you know, whether they're okay with a work for hire situation. Uh, but, but that is not the default. The default is, you know, I, I, I shot it, so I created it. Now, even though that protection subsists, whether you register the copyright or not, it makes sense to register your copyright, to let the Library of Congress know that you created this thing. Um, it's not difficult to persuade the, the copyright register that you have created something that warrants copyright protection. It's not difficult at all. It's a very low standard. For, for patents, it's very hard to do. You have to go through a whole process where you're negotiating with the patent office as to what it is that you invented. Not true of copyright. Copyright, pretty much by default, you submit your work, and there's a, there's a filing fee. You can do it electronically now, and, and actually for photographs, you can submit uh, your photographs as uh, what they call a group work, a group submission. <clears throat> so you can put a number of photographs in a single collection 
and submit that through the what they call the ECO or electronic copyright application or the form CO, which is a paper application. You can submit a, a disc with that. I think the filing fee right now for the ECO is $35 and the filing fee for the form CO paper version is like $55. And, and that registers your work. And it's something that I think people should be doing at least once a year uh, for a number of reasons. Um, but, but that's, but, but, but whether you do that or not, you have copyright protection. It's just registering it empowers you to do certain additional things that you would have a harder time doing if you uh, didn't register. Yeah. So let's talk about the difference between like, what is that actually, what are the benefits of registering versus not? And then I'm also curious about the timing of registering, like, like what, like if, like if I, so the, yeah, go so ahead. the timing is, you know, the, the, the timing generally is just my advice on timing is, is register as soon as possible. If you haven't been registering, just register now. Um, you can do it retroactively. It's, it's an imperfect solution for a variety of reasons, but it's still better than not registering at all. Um, because either the longer you wait, the more it's arguable that maybe you didn't have a copyright. If you reach further, you reach back to infringements that go further back in time. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but, but just taking, just registering it creates this sort of notice environment where now the library of Congress knows, <clears throat> and you could know through the library of Congress that this work is registered. And so that allows you to go to court if you want to, right. And seek both actual damages or statutory damages and statutory damages have teeth. You know, if you don't want to, if you don't want to go through the, the rigmarole of figuring out how much you were harmed, you could just, you could seek statutory damages and, and there's a lot of money there. I, we're talking about anywhere from $750 to, per infringement to up to $150,000 per infringement if you can show willfulness. So, so there's, there's real teeth in the statutory damages regime if you were interested in litigating your dispute. I'm not saying that most people are going to be in that position. Some people certainly are, and you do, you do see cases on this. But uh, predicate to all of that is having a registered copyright. So I, I think it's, it's better optically to not register and then sue, <clears throat> but rather to register and then, you know, if you discover infringements later on and you feel like you need to sue, uh, at least you already have the registration done. Okay. Because it, it doesn't cost a lot of money. It's just, an administrative, it's just an administrative hassle, right? But but it's not like it's a very expensive process. And it, now that you can do group submissions uh, it actually, and you can do it electronically, it actually makes it a lot easier to do your registrations. Right. So if, if I... <clears throat> What is the difference between what I can do in response to an infringement if it's not um, submitted to the copyright office versus it is? Well, I think the biggest difference is your ability to sue people for infringement. Uh, if you if you have a registered copyright, you can sue in the federal courts for infringement. If you don't have a registration, there are a lot of other things you can still do. You can send cease and desist letters. You can... Um, you can send what are called DMCA takedown notices, mm-hmm. 
which um, sometimes are easier than going after individual infringers, is just to say, as we've mentioned, a lot of infringement nowadays happens uh, on the internet, right? And the internet is provided by somebody, uh, usually a company, and or by a, a sharing platform, say a YouTube or a Vimeo or something like that. One of the things that you can do, or Facebook. So one of the things that you can do is um, send what are, what's called a DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, takedown notice. Uh, you know, you know where YouTube lives. You know where Facebook lives. You may not know where the person who's infringing your copyright lives, but you can go after the platform and and basically tell the platform, hey. This person is infringing my copyright by using your platform to display my image. And so at that point, you have to say it's my image, right? You don't have to have a registration for that, as far as I know. But you can still, you can still press for it by saying, hey, this is my copyright, and I have the right to grant license to it, and I don't grant a license to this person on your platform. And at that point, the... the um, service provider or the platform provider needs to take a look at your notice and act on it one way or the other. And generally they act on it by uh, taking the offending content down. And what will usually happen is if a user keeps on becoming the subject of takedown notices, there are consequences to that user's account. That doesn't really help you monetarily, right? right? Because, (laughs) Because you're just, you're basically just getting your stuff off the internet but it's at least a way if, if the infringement's bothering you, uh, but you're just not sure if it's worth pursuing this person or if you even can pursue this person in court or whether they're a deep enough pocket to pay you anyway, then you can at least stop the infringement on that platform. One of the things that I always hear people talk about, and I feel like most people don't have it right. <laughs> Um, and hopefully you can set us straight is the use of watermarks. So I know, you know, a lot of people I've, I've heard like very intelligent, uh, well-established photographers say that like, well, if you don't put at copyright in your watermark, then you're not protected. And I'm like, that's so not true, but like, what, what do watermarks do and what do they do? What do they not do in terms of legal protection? Okay. So, so what you just said is true. You do not need to watermark your images in order to obtain protection. As I mentioned before, the moment you take the picture, you have protection. The moment you finish processing the picture, you have protection over the processed mark, right? So you have protection over all those things. Um, but what the watermark does, uh, regardless of what your aesthetic uh, preferences are for watermarks, they, they, they serve uh, an important function in one respect. Uh, they get you protection under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act because the DMCA has specific provisions that punish individuals who remove watermarks. The whole purpose of the DMCA is to create a regime whereby uh, work, whether it's copyrighted or not, I mean, the DMCA isn't, the DMCA isn't even necessarily concerned about the underlying copyright, they're concerned about methods for preventing infringement. So it's kind of like having a safe. The DMCA is kind of like a safe, right? And 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 the crime is breaking the safe. Or not the crime, but the, the offense is breaking the safe. You, you don't even know if the safe is empty. The safe could be empty, right? 
but but the DMCA is the safe, and if you and just the mere act of, of breaking breaking into the safe is itself actionable. So watermarks are one way to lock the safe, right? Because what you're doing is you are giving notice to the public that hey, this is my photo, and and it is protected by copyright, and and this copyright symbol, this watermark that I'm putting on the picture, it, it is designed to let you know as a potential infringer that this is protected by copyright and you should not be distributing this without my authorization, right? So now if I pick up that image and get rid of the watermark, I am sort of implicitly depriving you, I'm, I'm implicitly meaning to infringe. It sets up, it sets up an intent, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That, that I want to I remove this copyright control symbol so that I can disseminate this. So it's sort of, there's this presumption now that you intended to infringe, but, but it's, it's not so much infringement as it is just uh, a violation, an ind independent violation of the DMCA that, that is itself actionable. So what you're doing with a watermark is you're, 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 you're setting the trigger for that. You're setting the trap for that. And, and so I, I think it's a good idea. You know, I, I used to have serious objections to watermarks, um, because of their aesthetics, uh, and and sometimes people just go crazy with watermarks. They'll like watermark the right. It just looks picture. super bad, and, I, and, yeah. I, and I, it just looks ridiculous. And I can't I can't tell what what that's supposed to be uh, after the watermark is put on it. But but the um, you know after going to law school and and studying the issues a bit, I realized well you you should you should watermark your pictures with something. Um, it's an extra step that I think is worth And it. when you watermark, like, does it have to have the copyright symbol or can it just be like a, like a symbol, like what, like, or a signature? Like, what do you, does it matter what's in the, I would say, I, I, I would say prudentially, it's a good idea to at least have the copyright symbol in there. Cause that makes it unambiguous. Uh, it is arguable that you don't need it, but I I think it just makes sense to put it in there. Do you do you do that? Because that's ah sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I think you saw I, I think you saw in my blog post uh, on on Mirko's website that I sent to you that I, that we didn't uh -huh. do that, and that was just because we forgot. But um, we have those images watermarked elsewhere, so I'm not too worried about potential infringement from right, there. Right, right, right. Um, I don't. I, well, I, I think we were just being lazy, but. Um, <laughs> You know, I think I think I was being like the heart surgeon that eats too much steak. You know, I, I just think that <laughs> I just think that I know better, but I don't. Right. But but in general, I yeah, in general, I, I, I have gotten into the habit of watermarking um, my images. So, well, so let's maybe shift gears a little bit and talk mm -hmm. about um, like model releases and permits. Mm -hmm. So um, like what what would you say to people? Um, that maybe do a little bit more stock photography or they are including um, images of people in their photos? Like what are the limitations of what they can use those photos for with and without a model release? So to the extent you're taking pictures of people and those people are recognizable, uh, you'll always want to get a model release, if it's, especially if it's in connection with a commercial project. Or if it's, in, if it's in connection with building your own artistic portfolio, because if you don't get a model release, the individuals in the photo could potentially sue on the basis of right of publicity to prevent you from 
publishing the image. So even though you own the image, it's not like they own the image. You do. You are limited by what you can do with it because they own their own likeness. And so they can prevent you from disseminating their likeness without authorization. Uh, what a model release does is it um, it gives it gives you authorization to um, disseminate their likeness for certain purposes that you specify in advance. So the same is true of sites. So if you if you're on a site and you're doing photography on a site, uh, you don't want to set up your shoot and be kicked out for trespass, right? Whether it's a private site or uh, a public site where a permit is required. You want to secure the necessary permits, uh, and and private actors usually have more control over how the images are used subsequently, and and you know some it's interesting some events and sites place tremendous control. They actually they actually grab your rights, all your rights. So if you go to for example Burning Man or certain festivals, uh, you actually need to sign away all of your copyright to everything that you shoot there. Uh, before before you go, because they 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 want to tightly control what what goes on. Uh, I've even seen situations where um, celebrities who should not be able to uh, have control over how their images are used because they're public figures and and there's sort of a, a an inherent information value in in photographs of them. We'll 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 try to you know if if there are official photographers. At some type of event, like a uh, like a concert will, or something, they, like a concert or, or something like that. Like I think Lady Gaga does this, where she will uh, preemptively grab your copyright if you're a photographer at the event, so she can control uh, which images go out. Or her her agents can control. How do they do that? Do they like out. embed that in the ticket? Like when you purchase yeah, the ticket? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly how they do it. Huh. So, uh, but, 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 you know, with respect to shooting on sites, um, permitting, permitting is key. Uh, whether it's a, whether it's private permission through, through a location release or applying for a permit through the municipality or the national park service or Bureau of land management, if that's necessary, usually BLM land, you don't need to do that for, but, but national parks, you often do, especially for commercial shoots. You need to get get permits to do commercial shoots on national parks. So get those; otherwise, they will throw you out. Yeah, and that that and definition that of that definition of professional seems to have some relatively blurred lines as well. It does, but I think it's safe to say that if you have a non cell phone camera and external lighting, people might people might properly assume that you're you're not uh doing it for fun although that's not necessarily you know like i i don't really do a lot of like commercial shooting anymore but i certainly carry around lights and stuff so i could be one of those people that get caught up in that right that that bad assumption but uh i think that's what triggers the the, the enforcement like and and even if you try to i've had situations where i've tried to persuade people when i didn't have maybe sufficient permission uh, or incomplete permission that that I'm not shooting this for any client. I'm just shooting it for myself. It's going to go in my portfolio. Right. And and I get responses from the officer like, yeah, well, that's a kind of a big camera. I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> just, but that doesn't make me professional. <laughs> it just just means I have a big camera. Um, but but I think what I've learned through both my own personal experience and 
my background study of others' unfortunate experiences in, in legal context is you should get, you, you should explore what permitting, what the permitting regime is and, and follow it. And if you are dealing with individuals, releases for everything. If you don't get releases from your models, the only thing you can use their images for is, is, if, is for, you know, news reportage, really. And, and that's generally not the reason why you're doing that type of shoot, right? You're doing that type of shoot for a specific commercial or artistic purpose. So, now, okay, okay, so what about, um, like, I'm sure street photographers deal with this, but sometimes I bet landscape photographers deal with it as well. Like, you know, there could be people in the photograph that maybe helps, you know, helps the scene or whatever, um, and you may or may not be able to recognize those people. Like, um, like if you wanted to use that in your portfolio and or for um, like selling the image as like a form of art, like what, like do you still need to get a, a release, a model release for that? If you can't recognize the people, it's unlikely that those people would win a right of publicity suit anyway. Or even know that you're selling the picture because it's hard to see who they are, right? Mm -hmm. um, if these people just happen to be around and and you shoot them in a context that's informational or photojournalistic, uh, you're, you're usually okay. But um, once you start getting into the realm where it looks like the individual is, is an important part of the subject and that individual is recognizable – that's the realm where you start taking a, a bit of a risk by not having a release. Um, so in those situations, you may want to get a written release. Uh, but, but obviously that's kind of awkward if you're, uh, if you're doing street photography and you like to do street photography with people. You know, and this is, a, this is a, a tough thing to do, I think, uh, street photography with people because I, it's only gotten harder and harder over the years, I believe. Because it used to be that it was just a novelty. You have a couple of people, tourists that are just sort of harmlessly snapping photos, or or that one, like really committed hipster photographer that's just out there and like taking cool pictures. But but now there are just so many cameras, and and depending on the culture of the city you live in, I live in Los Angeles. It's very very tough to just go out there and take pictures of people without without them getting grumpy with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so it creates these uncomfortable situations where you have to sort of ask for releases or, Hey, is it okay if I take your picture? And they're like, no, screw you. And you're like, Oh, sorry. Okay. I guess that looked creepy. And, um, <laughs> it, you know, it's like it came off as creepy or whatever. And, and so in those situations, there's a real risk if that person discovers that you're, uh, selling that image for profit, that they could sue you for, unlawfully disseminating their their likeness hmm. so so that's why you that, that i mean that's that's why you may want to be cautious about it um there's no there's no perfect answer for this stuff unfortunately what about uh, uh what about like um same same scenario but you're not selling it but maybe you're creating like a art exhibition like I, i've seen some really fantastic um art exhibitions online, um, which I'm assuming were also done at a gallery too. But like this one guy took um, pictures of these same people at the subway stop that he went to every day for work. 
and like over like 10 or 20 years or something, it was a long time and like showed how they changed over time and showed, but also showed like their, their rituals, their daily ritual. It was like a really fascinating project. And um, I don't, I doubt that guy had model releases to be able to create. No, I probably, probably not. But I think in those situations, certainly the, certainly if you have a non-commercial basis for shooting what you're shooting, you're sort of getting at the question of, well, did you profit from distributing my likeness? Right. And what was your profit? Uh, Ultimately what you want, what a lot of people want is, is recompense or they want their image to go away. Mm -hmm. They want their, they don't want their image to be used in the way that it was used. Uh, If they can't undo the original display, then they want compensation for it. Mm-hmm. But the compensation comes from where? I mean, does the, comp- does the compensation come from having profited somehow from the prior display of the image? Typically, these types of things are tied to how did you benefit from, from sort of doing this thing that was uh, unlawful or violative of this publicity mm-hmm. right, right? Um, and, and so they have to, there has to be some basis for proving that uh, the harder it gets to prove that, the less likely a suit like that is, is going to have uh, significant legs. But that being said, you don't want to be caught in that situation, right? Right. Um, you want to know your rights. But in general, I, I think as, as a uh, – just as a, a principle of operation, you don't want to be taking pictures that piss off your subjects <laughs> or could potentially invite – that could potentially invite lawsuits from them. Yeah. So you do what you can to avoid it. And and recognizing that that there are situations where their claims are going to be weaker and weaker and weaker, right? Um, uh, if you're, I think what you just described of people doing their rituals in the subway, you know, you could argue that this is not about them so much as it's about just like understanding um what should I say? Like daily, daily uh, understanding life. how the daily routine, daily life in the right. subway, and and you might you might you might get some mileage with that, <laughs> um, but 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 it, I think it's better to just establish a rapport with the subject right. to 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 sort of ensure that that you don't deal with that potential. Right. Now, a friend of mine does a lot of um, he's he mostly does landscapes, but. Um, you know, every time he goes out, he always does some model shoots with people like people he meets at the locations. He's like, Hey, you're really beautiful. And like, I want to take a picture of you in this amazing location. And I'll give you the picture too. Like, I just need you to sign this model release. And he just, he gets it every time. Like, it's really, he's really good at it. Um, David Soldano, if you're listening, mad props. Um, but I think that's like a really great approach. If that's a skill, yeah, if for sure, for sure, it's a skill. Absolutely, yeah. I, it's a skill I do not have. It's totally a skill. <laughs> well, I think it's a. I, I think you need to cultivate kind of a thick skin, right? Because you have to work through a lot of rejections, and and I've certainly, I've done editorial work and work with with models in studio, and and I do a lot of painting of models mm-hmm. in studio, and and you know, establishing a way to approach a model that's that, that like, I don't like, I know what my intentions are and I know that my intentions are purely art sort of creation of, of good art. Right. But the model doesn't know that the model, the model, especially if the models are are attractive, they're routinely 
bombarded by creepers. You know, right. I have a lot of friends who are models and they, they post some of the most um, awful stuff <laughs> that is sent to them via, you know, instant messenger or whatnot about like, Hey, I want to work with you. And I think you're sexy. Like yeah, that's right. not, <laughs> that's not how you get there, you know? And, and so developing that method of communication and then having a model release, but, it, but even more importantly, having a portfolio you can show immediately that's tasteful. Right. Um, that is, that sort of shows like, this is the kind of work that I typically do. Yeah. That so seems I'm, like that would dissolve yeah. everything right up front. Yeah, yeah, I'm not I'm not a guack, a guy with a camera, you know, like <laughs> I I have I have a sensibility and I have um an artistic perp goal that I'm trying to achieve. Right, and I right, think right. that I think that I think that you can help me do that. And um you know, sometimes the model will say screw off and and that's that. Uh, in sure, LA that's, that's certainly a thing, you know. There's right. a lot of beautiful people in LA. Yeah, that's their right and they can do that. But uh sometimes sometimes you'll do okay. And I've 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 usually done okay in that. And the few times I've done it, it hasn't been an issue because yeah. I I tend to come off as non creepy, which I notch as a success in my life. I don't come <laughs> off as creepy. Well, so along <laughs> those same lines, like in terms of landscape photography, I know a lot of a lot of us um, take pictures of beautiful places, and within that uh, photograph may exist private property or like a a building. Um, or maybe you're shooting cityscapes, um, like in terms of location releases or, or private property releases, like how crazy do you have to get? Like if you're, I mean, if you shoot like a huge cityscape or a panorama, like you're going to have like hundreds of private properties in one photograph. So like, what is the kind of approach to that as a photographer? So my instinct on location releases in that situation is that what you are Getting a release for is the right to be on the property. But what if you're so, what if you're taking the photo not like you're on public property, like maybe you're in a park or um, you're in a uh, I don't know, like you're in the national forest, but the photograph you're taking happens to be of private property or there's private property within the photo. So I need to explore this question more deeply, but my instinct on that is that you're fine because. Cool. Uh, my my understanding of, of the way location releases work are, is that you you need the release to be on the location. If you want okay, access to the location, sense. then then you need to be on it. And basically, the the release is uh, a guarantee that the that the owner of the property won't eject you for trespass. Right. <laughs> but if you're not tres if you're not trespassing, then you're good. I mean, I can't. I, I mean, I can think of some crazy theories that someone might come up with, like, "Oh no, there's something, there's some identity to this property. Like, you're you're infringing the copyright because it has architectural works built into it. There's like a creative expression, statues or whatever on the. I mean, you, there's all kinds of things you, you could you could potentially come up with, but but I, you know, you can't you can't live your life in fear of every lawsuit, right? So, I I, I would say I would say in that situation. You should take the picture. Yeah, well, trust me, I have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think, you, I mean, and I think that's the right call. You know, you can't. You know, an individual is a different thing. A person is a person, right? And they own their body sure. for sure. But, but uh, a person's property is not them. So right. Well, I know that in like stock photos for like Getty, like I've submitted some cityscapes, and they've asked me to like clone out any recognizable signage, you know, like of a company name or 
things like that, which yeah. I think is interesting. Yeah, that's 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 an intellectual property issue as well, but I think that speaks more to um, brand dilution or or the way that brands might be presented in the photo in a right. way that the owner of the brand would not prefer. Right. So I think what I think what Getty wants to avoid is a situation where um, you know there's a there's a Nike ad in the photo that is not prominent or even meant to be a big part of the photo, but maybe maybe your photo is about like the effect of the fires in Malibu on the city. And so yeah, you've got they like don't want this, to be associated this, this, with that. You've got this crazy photo of like these <laughs> these ash and dust clouds. It looks apocalyptic and there's a Nike ad right there. Right. And and so it's a great photo except there's a Nike ad. And so it, it, it could cast Nike in, in this apoc- apocalyptic light that they prefer not to be dragged into. So so that's why they stock photo agencies are cautious about this. Yeah. Well, one of the topics that I wanted to explore a little bit is um, like, I don't know how to describe this, but I think it's happened to a lot of photographers um, over the years where like you're either um, on the side of the road or in fact, I have a story about it. Um, you're on the side of the road or you're um, parked somewhere or you're in a location and the police um come and like ask you like what are you doing and like do you know or they even tell you like you can't take pictures here like what 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 are some advice you have for people like how do you respond to to that um like and do we have a legal right to be taking those pictures (laughs) um you know it really depends i there was a I remember that uh, there was a time where I was taking pictures of highway interchanges because I found them fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. Their shapes yeah. are really interesting. And I would take them at night to try to get some real simplicity on the interchanges. But it's inherently risk. It's an inherently risky form of photography. And, and there were situations where like a police officer would stop and say, Hey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm taking a picture. This was also back in, it was it was like post nine eleven, like maybe like within five years of nine eleven, right? So oh, right. people were like, like officials were, were were frequently worried that anybody taking pictures of bridges were somehow planning, you know, to destroy them. So uh, th- there there was that fear, uh, but I think that fear has really subsided over the years. Now, if you do find yourself confronted by a police officer on this issue, um. You can certainly ask what the basis for not being able to take pictures here is. Like, why can't I, I? I mean, I mean, first off, I, you you want to be polite, right? Right. You want to be very polite. You don't want to be combative. We've certainly seen enough uh, examples of what happens even when you're when you are polite, and sometimes a cop senses that you're a threat, right? You, you don't want to be sensed as a threat. So, right. Um, I think in those situations, you put your camera down. You, you establish yourself as non-threatening. And if you really, really value the image that you're shooting, um, you, you sort of, you, you go to the next level and you ask, well, so officer, I, thanks for, thanks for letting me know, but uh, could you, could you tell me a little bit, could you explain a little bit more as to why I can't take a picture here? And, and you never know there, there may be reasons for it, right? Like it, it could be that, that if you're, um, if you're just right off the highway and, and there's a fence there, that, that, that you're starting to enter private land, right? But yet, yet some of the most beautiful photography is off the highway, right? Like you're, you're driving along. One of my favorite photographs I've shot was in Gilroy in Northern California where they have these beautiful rolling hills and these mm-hmm. oak trees, these gnarled oak trees, and the weather conditions were just perfect. So 
I, I pulled my car over and I get off the side of the road, set up my tripod and I'm setting this thing up and, and, and a police officer pulls over and says, Hey, so what are you doing? I said, well, I'm taking pictures of this, these three oak trees right here. And I think they look really cool under the clouds. And, and, um, I didn't cross the fence. That was the key thing. I didn't cross the fence. I was shooting over the fence and, and the, and the officer was, was fine with it, you know? So, so I think also establishing your credibility with the officer as a photographer, maybe even explaining to the officer what it is that you're doing, uh, can get you out of a lot of trouble. Um, I generally think, uh, going into lawyer mode with a police officer can be perceived as threatening. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) And, 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 and to the extent, I mean, I don't even tell people I'm a lawyer most of the time, uh, just because, uh, I, I think it sends the wrong tone. It, it suggests that like, okay, I'm ready to engage in combat now. Right. Right. That's, that, that's not where, that's not where you want to be. Uh, so, so I, when it comes to giving legal advice on how to deal with police officers, I, I think that unless you're dealing with like threats to your life and freedom, you should just like chill out <laughs> and and find a way to build an accommodation with the officer as to how you can just do this quickly and be done or sort of negotiate with the officer a little bit like hey this is what i want to accomplish here is there a way that i can accomplish this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and and that way you're sort of bringing the officer into your into your your head to why you're doing what you're doing. And, and now the officer doesn't perceive you as a threat. Maybe the officer though thinks that, okay, well, you could get hurt here, right? Because there's lots of cars coming. It's more dangerous than you think, all right? But then I've also had situations where that's occurred and the officer says, well, you know what? How long do you think you'll be? And I, you know, I'll say, I, I can be done in like five minutes. Says, all right, well, I'll just wait here behind you with my lights on. You know, and I'm like, dude, that's super cool. Thank you. And he said, yeah, no problem. Just let me know when you're done. And, um, hopefully, hopefully those lights won't ruin your photo, <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> but, uh, but, but that's, you know, I, I think my advice for dealing with that situation uh, is, is not legal advice. I, I can certainly follow up, um, after you post this with, with, with some additional commentary on how to deal with that situation. And, and, and you should know your rights, obviously. Right. But your rights really vary from place to place. Right. So, so that's why it's really hard to come up with like a, a real general formulation mm-hmm. of how you handle that situation. Like, like I would say the general formulation is, oh, if you're on public property and you're shooting, you're fine. You know, that's the general formulation. But, but there could be safety reasons, right, as to why you can't shoot in a specific place. Um, some kind of regulation. It, it could even be up to the discretion of the officer in some situations. So, so that's why because it's such a it's such a patchwork, it's such a mosaic. Of, of potential um, shifts in your rights, it, it, it's good to just try to come to an accommodation mm-hmm. and also decide in your own mind, like, how important is this picture to me versus, you know, having an altercation with the police <laughs> that I might regret and and sort of guiding your conduct in that sort of mature way. Yeah, it seems like the worst thing you could do is be defensive or, like, question questioning them like well who do you think you are like it seems like if you were like oh help me understand and like if they don't have a super compelling you know reason maybe it's like well like here's what i'm trying to do and take this picture like is that okay you know yeah that's exactly or or even just ask like i sometimes ask the officer for their advice it's like hey this is what i want to do you know uh is there a way officer that i could i could i could accomplish this 
um, that would that you'd be comfortable with, you know, right? Uh, and you and you still feel like you're doing your job, and you've done your job, you do, you've done your duty, you know, right? So so I think I, I think it, it, it's kind of like it, it's how you manage your interaction. It's more about how you manage your interaction and less about uh, litigating your rights. Because it, it, it's hard to litigate your rights in front of a police officer, like you know, like it's that's that's a that's something you do in court. It's something you do in a license or a negotiating situation for a license. A police officer kind of has the upper hand on you in terms of authority by default, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, you're just you take in the end, you're just taking a picture. It's important to us as photographers, like it's not just taking a picture, but to the officer, it's like you're just taking a picture. That's it. Like, what is the big deal? Why are we having this fight? Right. So, so if you can, if you can even convey to the officer, like, this is why it's a big deal to me. Let me see if I can get you to understand why it's a big deal to me, and and maybe we can figure out how to get this to work. I think that you can get a long way towards uh, achieving the goal that you want to achieve. Yeah. Uh, and and turning and, tur- and 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 sort of flipping interference possibly into enablement, right? Like like you're, you're the officer. Like like I said, I had an officer once like just park his car behind me and turn his lights on, and make sure no one hit me. Which I thought was really cool, you know. It's like that's that's I think what you want. Yeah, if you can achieve it. Well, sometimes you can't. Well, most yeah. of the times so. they're you know they're just trying to you know protect public safety. Um, I I know the one time I had an interaction, it was like uh, it was like two in the morning. I was on the side of a highway. Um, <laughs> I was on the opposite side of the road than what than my car was facing. So like I was parked on the left but i was yeah. faced like i was driving on the right because i that's how i parked my car because it was like 10 degrees below zero and i was just trying to take some star trail photos um mm-hmm. and like off state patroller came and he was like what are you doing and i was like um first he was like are you okay and i was like yeah i'm fine i'm yeah. just i'm just taking some photographs of the star trails over that mountain over there and he was like oh okay cool he's like next time just park the car on the other side of the road and i was like oh, yeah yeah no yeah. my bad <laughs> but yeah, yeah i mean he was just mostly yeah. concerned with my safety so they're usually they're usually pretty good and you know the the, the further out you go into the country i found the nicer the cops are <laughs> right they're like and, 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 and ironically enough also the the bigger the city you're in um the less they care because they have other stuff. Yeah, to like, do. come on, buddy, just right. get out of here so I can go do my job. Yeah, or just I'm not going to worry about it, right? Because I've got real, I got, I got real work. Right, because their dispatch uh, is like, so, okay, we have some guy taking pictures over on the interpass. There's a there's a bank robbery going on over here. There's a traffic accident over here. Like, which one are you going to respond yeah. to? Yeah, I think that's going to be uh, three one two is going to be the order of those three examples <laughs> right? that you just gave right there. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, man, like we just covered a whole bunch of issues. Um, you know, coming back to the photography side of all of this, like who do you think would be cool to hear on the podcast? Like who inspires you um out there? All right. Well, I'm I'm going to give a shout out to my friend uh Mirko Vichernik. He is a photographer based in Germany <coughs> whom I first met on a workshop and uh, we just immediately sort of took to each other. Like he's just the nicest guy and he has, he's done some really, really impressive work in, in the European Arctic, Norway and, and um, Sweden. 
And he recently started this project called Vision and Life, which is a, a blog where he interviews people and uh, talks about so, sort of gets it gets tries to get from them a, a sense of what it means to be a creative person hmm. and, and what their creative process is and what their creative philosophy is. So um, for some reason, he chose me and my wife to be interviewed at one point. And, and, <laughs> and our, our interview is up there, but but I don't, I'm not going to make this a plug for myself because there's a lot of other people who are way more talented than I am uh, who are on his on his list of publications. Guy Tal is up there. Yeah. Um, a number of other very well-known photographers uh, well, we'll have, definitely... have, weighed, have weighed in. So he's he's fabulous, and if you can get him on, um, I think I think he would be just a fascinating and informative and very positive conversation because he's just a very positive guy. Yeah, and we'll definitely put a link to that project in the in the liner notes uh, for the for the podcast. So. Um... Awesome. I, awesome. I wanted to ask you about one more thing because it just I just remembered sure. it. Um, I I use a service, and I don't know if you've heard of it or not, but I use a service called Pixie. It's P-I-X-S-Y dot com. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the premise of it, I don't know if you're familiar with it at all, but basically you can kind of um, – you can – have it log into all of your like photo sharing sites like Flickr and 500px and Instagram and it basically like aggregates all of your photographs and then it looks for uses of that photograph on the internet um and then you can use it to then do like you were saying uh DMCA takedown notices or you can actually create cases where they will seek uh monetary reimbursement for the image being used improperly um, or without your permission or without licensure. Um, and I've actually, I don't know, a couple, three, or $400 worth of cases. I've, I mean, it's not a lot of money, but, uh, I don't know. I just wanted to throw it out there to see if you've heard of it. Um, and if you know of any other services that are similar that you would recommend, uh, to people. I, I haven't heard of it, although I've often thought that that seemed, that was a good idea because we have such great technology for image recognition now why not um, harness that to develop some kind of customizable search that can find <coughs> unlawful uses of your images? Um, that sounds amazing. I, I guess the only challenge that I would sense there is what if the what if the image uses overseas? That that just complicates matters tremendously in terms of enforcement. But um, yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that, and I may have some additional follow ups uh, once once we post this. I may I may add some stuff in the comments on that because that's that's something I've been thinking about for a long time, and it sounds like someone finally maybe has um, implemented it. So I will yeah, I think I will research that. I think it's pretty cool. Um, like what's it what's I, it called again? Pixie Pixie P I X S Y Pixie. Um. And uh, it's funny, like as we were talking, I was trying to remember what it was called and I found it again and I logged in and I found uh, National Geographic used a photograph of mine for a magazine cover in Poland, but I'm pretty sure they licensed it through Getty because I do think I have that one on Getty. So I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. So then you have to like remember, um, not only do you have to remember, is that one on Getty or not? And they actually ask you that question if you submit a case. Um, like, is this licensed elsewhere? Um, so yeah, it's, um, it's yep. a pretty good process, but, uh, 
man, it's pretty painful, like going through all of them and trying to think like, have I licensed that one or not? And yeah, but it's, I don't know. It's, it's a good it's way the, to do you it. Know, the fact, the fact that you can do it, cause you're never going to be able to do it yourself. No, so you can't police so, the internet. So have, have, <laughs> you really can't, but, but having someone that can at least give you a, an advanced digest of what, what's being done. I, that's, that's incredibly powerful. And, I don't see much good reason to not use it to at least know what's going on. Right. And then, and then based on that knowledge, you can decide what actions you want to take, right? Whether it's a, a cease and desist letter, whether it's a takedown notice, whether it's, it might be valuable enough to pursue litigation. Uh, or if you just have to live with it, sometimes you have to live with it. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, a lot of times you have to just live yeah. with it. Um, yeah. That's just, that, that's life. And it sucks because somebody in, somebody in China is, putting your picture up on a forum post somewhere. You're just like, yeah, that's not going to be actionable. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I had a, um, so on the, um, another interest of mine is writing and I actually, um, have a whole website where I've done a ton of writing on mountaineering. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, I found a, a local news site had more or less plagiarized like, um, the entire article that I wrote you know, and they used it as clickbait, uh, um, cause it's a pretty, I don't know. It's a pretty, it's a topic that like a lot of Coloradans enjoy. Like, um, of course the, well, know, topic I enjoy. And they literally like almost word for word, um, copy and pasted my entire article and then posted it as their own with not even, not even with a link to my website. Wow. Yeah. That's brazen. I, and like I was, and it was like a pretty big, like, I don't know, like channel nine news or something. Like it was a pretty big, um, media company in Denver. So I actually reached, wow. I actually reached out to them and I was like, um, I, I was at first, I was just going to be a total dick. Like, Hey, nice job plagiarizing my article. But instead I took the high road <laughs> and I was like, Hey, so I noticed you basically, used most of my writing for your article. I was wondering if maybe in exchange you could maybe promote some of my photographs and maybe um, like post links to my article and maybe post links to my work so that people could find it. You know, like at least uh-huh. do something in exchange because good What God. did they say? What they, did they say? They apologized. I mean, if I, they didn't apologize as profusely as I would expect them to like – Oh my God, you're right. We basically just used the entire article, <laughs> but um, yeah. You no, know, was... I think there's a, ba- I, I, you know, I think there's a balance there. Um, I feel like if it's a media company that's doing that, I, I would, I might have chosen to be a little bit more aggressive. I think I would have said, uh, you know, this is the article that I published. This is the article that you published, and they're pretty much the same. And it's, I think it's, I think it's fairly unlikely that, that these were independently generated. So, um, I want to talk about, uh, how we want to resolve this infringement question. And then maybe as a follow up, you can, you can offer an olive branch if you want. Um, I think offering the olive branch in advance could potentially have said, oh, well, phew, this guy's not going to sue us. All right, great. Um, (laughs) You know, um, but, but if you, if you're a little bit more, uh, you know, I, I don't know that like guns blazing is the right way to do it either, 
because that could because that, that could just like create a really adversarial relationship but but if at least you come in and say like you know i i plan to pursue whatever it i i you know i plan to pursue a remedy to to sort of address this but if you want to talk about it first let's let's talk and and maybe we can come up with come to an agreement that right. might set the tone in a way that like okay there's an opening here um to resolve this without a, a serious kerfuffle, Let, let's see if we can do that. Right. Um, you know, you go in guns blazing, and it's like, oh man, they call their outside lawyers, and now you're talking to an outside lawyer, and and you know that maybe that lawyer knows more than you do about the situation, and and they start trying to intimidate you. It just makes the whole situation uncomfortable. If instead you stepped in and say, I'd like to talk to you about this, and you know, please be aware that I consider this to be an infringement of my intellectual property rights, and and I, you know. I'd like to not have to pursue it in court, so let's see what we can do. Uh, but, I, but, I'm, but I'm reserving the right to do so. Uh, that that seems like uh, another balance that you could take that that might get them to apologize more profusely, right. at the very least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. Like I feel like this whole copyright thing for photographers comes up in my my Facebook news feed on a pretty regular basis, and it's. It's just amazing to me how frequently um, people out there are using our intellectual property for their own gains. It's it's kind it's of so, it's, scary. It's just easy to do. It's so easy to do. That's the thing. It is. Like yeah. Google, <coughs> there's Google image search, and you know there's there's so many interesting cases that happened in the early days of Google image search where photographers literally sued Google or content owners. They sued Google for their image search. Saying, "Hey, you're, you're copying our images by putting them in your search structure," and Google won every time. Really? Because they have, they have really good lawyers. I actually know one or two of their lawyers. They have really good lawyers, and they <laughs> they do an excellent they do an excellent job of of painting Google in in as as a sort of uh, a, a public resource. You know, it's just like. How would anybody know about these artists unless we were posting their work on the Google image search? And we're not posting the entire work. We're posting thumbnails. They're degraded versions. And they're being posted for the purpose of increasing access to the artists. Of course they're not. Like Google makes their money from advertising. And as a, as a collateral benefit, you, the artist, might get more traffic to your website. I think that's probably indisputable that you probably get more traffic to your website if you show up in a Google image search. But, you know, that's not, that's not really what Google wants to do. But that's what they say they want to do. And, and they, they consistently have done well uh, in court on copyright issues. This was, a, this was on, based on fair use. Yeah. So, so, so you know, that's – yeah, it, it, but it makes it really easy. You know, like you get on Google image search and I can pull high-resolution reference photos if I want to. Right. You know, I can usually find pretty high resolution versions of, of images. Well, so. and in their defense, I mean, I have had several people buy prints from me because they found them through doing Google image search, you know, like. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think they're probably right. I think yeah. I think their lawyers are probably right. But but there's definitely some theatrics there. For you sure. Know, there's definitely there's definitely like, how do I paint my client in a way that that makes them look good? And, and I think certainly that incidental benefit of the artist getting more traffic to their website is not imagine right that's a real thing right right yeah but that's how they but 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 you know that, that but that sort of speaks to the ease with which images are disseminated and processed and 
And now they're talking about um, Google's image search having an AI algorithm that can take millions of images and build its own. Yeah. Right. From them. So, so it's just, it continues to to, like the, the digital imaging world continues to get more and more interesting and, and the law I think will find it harder and harder to stay abreast of it. Yeah. I was going to say like to your point earlier, um, the technology is advancing at a much, much more rapid pace than the actual legality of, of what you can do with that technology. (laughs) Absolutely. And you know, that, that I think speaks to the, how, how important copyright law has become. Copyright law wasn't a big deal in the 1800s. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it really wasn't. It's just like, it's so hard to copy something. Right. You know, like, like, like I just, you just didn't have a lot of actionable cases. Now it's everywhere right? because it's become so easy and the laws just aren't really designed to protect it. And, and there have been all of these efforts to, uh, <clears throat> you know, harmonize copyright worldwide because the internet isn't a, a national thing, right? The internet is, is a global thing. So how do you, how do you harmonize it? But th- those harmonizations are always imperfect. Yeah. And, 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 and enforcement is always uneven. So, so that's why it's, it's very difficult to police the internet. But, but that tool that you mentioned sounds like it's a really good way to start. And yeah. I hope we'll see more of that. Yeah, we'll put, I'll put a link to it in the, in the notes as well. Well, man, that'd be fabulous. Yeah. Well, dude, this has been really educational and like, I can't express to you enough. Thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about it. Um, it's, I've been wanting to, thank you for having me. Yeah. I've been wanting to have someone to come on and talk about these issues for a while. And, um, I think you did a really fantastic job of answering the hard questions. So thank you so much for your time, dude. And, and, and also, and also, if I haven't bored you and your audience to tears enough already, if there's if there's anything you'd like to follow up on at some point, um, or the different questions you want to address, I am happy to come back at some point and, cool. and talk to you again. And uh, if um, I, I guess this is kind of a funny question: if people were um, ever wanting somebody to take on their cases, like, are you somebody that they could reach out to? I might be, but I could probably recommend people who are better situated. Cool, cool. Okay, right on. Yeah. And uh, how can uh, people learn more about you and your photography and your artwork? Well, right now my my website's being revamped, but there's a great blog post of me uh, on Mirko's Vision and Life website, which I think um, cool. gets into mine and my wife's artistic philosophy. And hopefully in a couple of days or maybe a week or so, I will have my, my website finally resolved. Awesome. And uh, we'll have that to share. Uh, before this before this uh, podcast goes up sounds sounds great well thanks again i appreciate it oh it's been my pleasure thank you so much all right well thanks to arca for taking the time to visit with us on the podcast i personally learned a lot about copyright law and how to apply it towards my own work if you enjoyed the talk there's a ton more of our on patreon like i said before it is a literal goldmine of information that I think you will get a lot out of. So check that out. So this past week and a half, I spent uh, some time in Kauai and had the opportunity to sit down in person with landscape photographer Aaron Feinberg in his amazing gallery for the next week's podcast episode. We shared some beers and had a really great time. Of course, my ability to do these in-person podcasts is made possible through your generous support over on Patreon, so thank you so much. So speaking of Patreon, 
let's uh, thank our new patrons um, and apologize in advance if I butcher your name at all. So, uh, we have Rick Alway, William Norse. We have quote unquote Chucker. Uh, that's what they put their name in as Chucker or Chucky. Thanks, man. And uh, Bo Ewan. Thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast. In 2019, I'm really hoping to get the word out about the podcast even more, and I need your help. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're probably what I would call a super fan. So come on, guys, please go on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Tell us what you like about the podcast. Then, as fun, for a little bit extra fun, send me a direct message over on Instagram that you left the review so that I can thank you in some awesome way. If you want to leave comments about the episode or uh, check out the liner notes and um, some of the links to topics we discussed and uh, the book that Arca suggested and things like that, head over to my blog at mattpainphotography.com. And as usual, you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram as mattpainphoto. I assume people use Twitter. I, I, don't, I, don't, like, I don't get a lot of follows over there, but I love Twitter personally. Um, and on Facebook as Matt Payne Photography. We also have a really fun um, group on Facebook, which you can check out. Um, it's a really great way to engage with the community, um, ask questions of upcoming guests. Um, you really just become part of the show, and I've set it up for you guys to to really just put your put your feedback in as best you can. So check that out. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.